There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. Pleased to present for your consideration, Mr. Booth Templeton, serious and successful star of over 30 Broadway plays, who is not quite all right today. Yesterday and its memories is what he wants. And yesterday is what he'll get. Soon his years and his troubles will descend on him in an avalanche. In order not to be crushed, Mr. Booth Templeton will escape from his theater and his world and make his debut on another stage in another world that we call the Twilight Zone. Alright guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host Jimbo, today joined in the Fifth Dimension once again by my co-host... 80s E, here back in the Fifth Dimension, and I hope everyone's doing well. Yep, I hope everybody's got their uh, Christmas shopping done or getting close to it being done. Uh, Today we'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 9, The Trouble with Templeton. Eric, I do not have any questions for you this week, so we'll just go ahead and (laughs) kick it off to you to start the episode. All right, The Trouble with Templeton, this is The Twilight Zone, Season Number 2, and it's Episode Number 9. And this was directed by Buzz Kulik, and it was written by E. Jack Newman. And I have a little notation here about E. Jack Newman. This was his only contribution from a script perspective. Uh, The notation that I have here says this, While Serling confessed to not buying a single script from any outside submission submissions, this script must have intrigued Sterling, for E. Jack Newman became the first outsider, other than Beaumont and Matheson, to submit a plot synopsis and receive a contract. And that's from the book by Martin Grahams Jr., entitled The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. So I thought that was an interesting little notation, that uh, E. Jack Newman got a script, uh, you know, he got it squeezed in there. Uh, we have some featured music by Jeff Alexander. And this original air date for this episode was December the 9th, 1960. And it had a total production cost of $50,183.38. And when we adjust that for inflation, uh, we're at a tenfold inflation rate of about $505,244.91 for a 906% increase. Again, I would say that that's a steal if you could produce uh, a television episode for $500,000 in today's time and space. That would You'd be doing really well, and you probably would be well under budget if you were producing a television show for that uh, amount. Uh, Jimbo, do you have some other line items and details that you have about Absolutely. the uh, total yeah. cost? So um, a couple of things is it's always amazing how they rehearse for a day or two, and then they go into the filming. Um, it's usually either one or two days. Uh, so the dates of the rehearsal for this one was October 4th and 5th of 1960. And the dates of the filming was October 6th, 7th, and 10th. 
1960, which I'm assuming that means they took the 8th and 9th, which was probably a weekend off. Uh, some line items, the producer and secretary was $1,775. Uh, the story and secretary was $2,393. The director was $1,250. The cast, a uh, great, vast improvement over last cast, uh, $6,450.93. Unless it was a typo in the book I have, uh, that could be too, where it was $6,000. We'll have to crunch the numbers. We'll get back with you on that. Uh, the unit manager and secretary was three hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, the production fee was eight hundred twenty-five dollars. Agent's commission was two thousand five hundred dollars. Uh, the legal and accounting was two hundred fifty dollars. Below the line charges for MGM was thirty-one thousand nine hundred sixty-one dollars and eighty-nine cents, and below the line charges and the line of other was two thousand four hundred twenty-seven dollars and fifty-six cents. And the total production cost, as Eric stated was $50,183.38. When you see a production cost like that, it's no wonder that they tried to go to tape, you know what I mean, for a couple of episodes. Uh, you know what I mean? Right. About $10,000 higher than probably the month they wanted to do. So let's go ahead and jump into the cast real quick. Um, the great uh, Brian Ahern uh, played the main character, Booth Templeton. Uh, he was in A Night to Remember in 1942, and he also played King Arthur in the movie Lancelot. And I have a little excerpt from my trusty Twilight Zone companion book that every Twilight Zone fan should have. Um, so here we go. Cast as Templeton was Brian Ahern, and a better choice could not have been made. Like Templeton, Ahern had been a great actor, superb as the Emperor Maximilian in the movie Juarez, at 58, he was still a remarkably handsome young man, or not young, but a handsome man, and a prospective and skillfully performer. Hey, Eric, he was almost as old as you. Um, but when he received the Twilight Zone script, he didn't know what to make of it. When I first read the script, I thought the writer must surely be out of his head, which uh, he said at the time. Then uh, Rod Serling suggested I have a look at one of the earlier shows. I'd never seen it before, and I'm not much of a TV fan. Then I realized what Twilight Zone meant, and that the script was really an excellent one. Brian Ahern was just a charming, wonderful, delightful man, a terribly professional man, and one of the nicest people that I've ever worked with, says director Buzz Kulik. He was very touched by what he had to do. It was a very, very real uh, to him. As for himself, Kulik admits that he too was moved by the material. Maybe it was because it was about to show business, maybe because I could relate to it myself much more than most things, but I've always had a very special affection for that show. Moving on with the cast, we have Pippa Scott being played by Laura Templeton. Uh, she was in Auntie Mammy in 1958. And then, yes, the legendary uh, producer, director, um, executive producer, Sidney Polak, uh, was, uh, played Arthur Willis in this show. Uh, you may know him from movies uh, such as Tootsie. Some other ones he's been either a producer, executive producer, or acted in was Cold Mountain, The Talent of Mr. Ripley, Eyes Wide Shut, where he played Victor Ziegler, uh, Sabrina, Sense and Sensibility, Death Becomes Her, which we've covered on this, where he was an ER doctor, uh, uncredited. Uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer, that's another great movie about chess. Uh, King Ralph, The Firm, Jeremiah Johnson, where he was the director. So this guy, he, he, was, he was everywhere. Uh, and he's, he's been in a lot of stuff and directed a lot of stuff and produced a lot of stuff. Uh, then you had Dave Willock, who played Marty in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, where he was Ray Hudson. He was also in Queen of Outer Space in 1958. Then you had King Calder, who was Sid Perry, uh, Sperry, sorry, and he was in The Best of Broadway in 1954. 
Larry J. Blake played Freddy. He was in Sunset Boulevard in 1950, as well as Hang 'em High. Uh, David Thursby played Eddie, so you had Freddy and you had Eddie, uh, in Zero Hour in 1957. <laughs> you had Charles Carlson played Barney Pfluger. I thought he did a really good job in this. Uh, he was in Death Valley Days in 1952. You had George Boyce, who was in How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, where he played the waiter. And there's several other ones in here that are uncredited, but I'm going to go ahead and mention this one. You had George Ford, who was in Some Like It Hot, where he was the bar patron, which we've covered Some Like It Hot from 1959 on this podcast before. So, Eric, that is your cast of The Trouble with Templeton. All right. Just as it relates to Brian (laughs) Ahern, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's interesting how this character sort of mirrored his own life in acting. Like, he... He was actually Oscar. He was an Oscar nominated um, for a, well, it says stage and screen here in his mini any mini bio, a stage and screen actor who was the top cinema character actors in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. So he had established uh, a long resume of acting in his own right, and uh, he was actually born in 1902. I thought he was English, and I went back, and it's yeah, I was right. He was. Uh, he was born in Kings Norton, Warshire, England, and he, he performed as an actor as a child. So he's a child actor. He, he goes way back, and he made his uh, first debut uh, acting as an adult at the age of 18. And uh, he, he was in theater productions and so forth. So I thought that was kind of cool as, I, as you were going down the cast list there, and I went back and looked at a little mini bio of his life and how it it actually mirrors the character that he plays here in the mm-hmm. in the Twilight Zone. That, that's pretty cool. So uh, let me move along with the plot of this particular episode. Booth Templeton is a renowned stage actor who has uh, reached a stage in his personal life where he has idealized his past. In particular, he had fond memories of his first wife, Laura. And uh, again, in the episode it says that they were married at age 18 and that Laura passed away at age 25. And that, that brings him a great deal of, uh, uh, distress and sadness. And he sort of lives his life in this episode through, uh, that lens of everything kind of stopped at age 25 for him. Uh, and he misses her and, and it goes on. Let me go on with the plot. It says after a stressful encounter, uh, at the theater, he walks out of a stage door and finds himself in 1927 where he joins his wife and best friend Barney Fluger for dinner. It all reminds him that his past was not as rosy as he may have remembered it. So lots of fond memories, but, uh, you know, he, he, he idealizes his past in this episode and, um, you know, he is quickly uh, brought back to reality uh, in the episode, so let me launch right into it. And uh, Jimbo, do you got anything as far as uh, any opening scenes? Uh, yes, I things do, that you I got. I have a, a, a quick okay. thing at the beginning. At the beginning of this episode, um, you see uh, Templeton with his, I'm assuming, butler, um, and yeah. he's looking out the window and he sees his wife flirting uh, with, uh, I'd say, the pool boy, cabana boy, whatever you want to. Uh, groundskeeper yeah and you know he says and his butler gives him this pill and he, he, he or medicine of something and he drinks it and he's like you know i should have known that somebody my age marrying somebody that young um uh, to to yeah. you know what would happen she there, there'll be a day when 
she hopes that this pill doesn't do what it what it's supposed to do and I'm gonna hope the same thing so my question is twofold number one what do you think the pill was that the butler gave him um, it's he has to have some sort of illness uh, or preventative uh, preventative medicine and number two do you think that uh, throughout his life that Templeton tried to marry young to keep the memories of Laura alive yeah that's an interesting observation uh, that there might be something to that I really didn't consider the pill too much I thought maybe it was just a vitamin of some sort or whatever but now in the context of the dialogue yeah maybe it was some sort of uh, heart medication uh, who knows what kind of medication it was maybe that is quote unquote keeping him alive but I had another question in regards to the opening scene. Is this the same pool it is. that we see from the episode that we covered a few episodes back, uh, Trouble with Machines? Is no, that the same it pool? is the same pool. No. It is the same pool from two other Twilight Zone, uh, though. Okay. It is the uh, episode that? of The Queen of the Nile and episode of The Bewitching Pool. Um, okay. I don't think we, we, have, we I haven't got that far that, yet. But I do believe The Bewitching Pool, if I memory serves me correct. That's where those kids dive into the pool and they go off to that, uh, basically to another land or whatever. I, I'm, I'm, I might be at the end of this season. Okay, yeah, uh, I haven't it is, even gotten it is, to, to watch the pool those is two episodes. At, yeah, yeah. Uh, Cone Park on the MGM lot, and it's part of lot two, so that is definitely one note I did have. <laughs> okay, so. yeah, that, that was uh, one of my questions because. The, it looked similar to the episode that we covered a few episodes back, the, the, the Trouble with Machines, but I wasn't for sure. I know that they reuse a lot of sets and props and pools and stuff. So um, so uh, nothing really sticks out other than the, this guy, obviously, what's his name? In the, the Is his name Marty? Is the butler's name Marty? Uh. Sorry, I'm looking back at the cast list, but... I think so. Nevertheless, this butler is... You can tell that their relationship's really close, and he's more like a friend. And, you know, they're really close, and he's probably been around a long time. And he tries to comfort Booth and, you know, reminds him... Because, you know, Booth has sort of got a really um, pessimistic view of his life as it sits now. He understands that his position and... You know, he's kind of a, maybe a has-been, and he's kind of been moaning that fact, and he's sad. and But everything seems to center around the loss of uh, of his wife at, at an early age. I mean, to lose your wife at age 25 for anybody would be um, pretty monumental, and it, would, it very much would stick with you in your life. But I thought this was an interesting little detail. Like, he, he holds up the, what is that thing, the ballerina, the music box thing, and then when he talks about her death, the music stops. So I thought that was a point of a focus by Rod there. That when he talks about her dying, it's almost like it's almost like Booth died that day too. Like everything is is lived in the past for him. Like he, he, you know, it's hard for him to move forward in all these years. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool little detail. Anything in the opening scene, and it looks like his bedroom, and then uh, we we get to Rod's narration here, the opening monologue, which comes in, I think it comes in a little bit earlier than the last episode, uh, not seven minutes in, it's a little bit earlier, and the, it's just, I, I don't think it's really that, it doesn't really stand out, the, the camera just sort of pans over to 
Rod, and he's standing kind of in the corner of the bedroom, and he delivers his uh, monologue. And uh, the next scene we come to is, uh, is it the butler that's driving the car, too, or does he have a driver? I can't tell. You know, I didn't really but pay the driver, attention to that. I didn't either. Uh, and so the driver drops him off at the uh, the studio, the acting studio, and uh, he's confronted by, uh, who is this guy? Arthur Willis? No, no, it's not Arthur Willis. Um, Sid Sperry, that's the guy, I think. He, he's like the owner of the club, and he's the one that's put this new director in charge of this production that uh, Booth is a part of. And he's Booth is really not, he's not really into... He's not really into this production, really. I mean, he's kind of half-heartedly going. He doesn't really want to go to begin with, and that, you know, he shows up. But uh, Jimbo, did, did you, you have did something? Did you catch, pay, catch the uh, theater they're at? They are at the I have... Avery Theater, which is yeah. uh, the same as in the very first episode of Twilight Zone. Where is everybody? Yeah. As well as yeah. referred to in the episode The Dummy, where the dummy actually says something verbally. So. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting that it's kind of like the Twilight Zone is its own universe, you know what I mean, where all these episodes are happening in the mm-hmm. same area, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm i trying to go back in my mind to the where is everybody and that's where, that's where, where that he, comes that's into where play. Is that the very end where the booth is set up? And... That's where he runs into the movie theater, ain't it? I think back then it was a movie theater. Oh, you know okay. I mean? And this is actually a yeah. stage oh, thing, okay. I do believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't really have anything for these opening scenes uh, other than this new director, Arthur Willis. He is a no-nonsense. He's kind of giving it to Booth, like, I don't care whether you're young or an old actor or whoever you are, you have to be here on time, and there's three important dates in the life of a production, and he goes on and on and gives a a speech. And um, (laughs) for some reason... Booth cannot remember the Sid Sperry guy's name, and he starts to take offense to that. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was kind of funny. But, but I mean, Booth is a seasoned seasoned veteran, and you know he's going to go. He, reluctantly, he's he's going to go in. He's going to do his job, and he he's going to get it done. He's done this a thousand times probably before. Well, they say something like he's done little, thirty Broadway play or thirty plays or something like that. They said, yeah, something like that. So he's just going to go in. and He's going to do his job. He's a well seasoned veteran, and but something there's a somewhat of a twist that's going to come in his life here very shortly in the in the episode. Um, you may have already picked up on this, but if you've watched the episode, but th- this one takes place, and we're going to get to that in 1927 and 1960. Those are the two times that this uh, uh, episode takes place. There's nothing really in the in the initial scenes that really sticks well, out. I do think, I do think that the do yeah, you have I do think that when the new director okay. of this new play that's going on, when Templeton walks in, because he's just walking in like. Yeah, he's like, when I say we start at noon, or 12, we start at 12. He said there are three yeah. very important days in the life of Burger. Yeah, he said so opening just... day, or first first day of uh, rehearsal, uh, opening day, and then closing day, or whatever, or closing night, whatever he says. And so right there, you can tell that he is off the cuff. He's not, Templeton's not used to this kind of treatment, because he's basically a star. But now it's kind of like he's a washed-up star, uh, according to the new guy in town, yeah. so... 
So then, uh, after those initial meetings with this new director, he he kind of gets angry, right? And then he go he leaves the leaves the theater and he passes through the door and that's when he's transported back to 1927 when his career was rip-roaring. He goes out to the standing applause, all the people... Yeah, all the crowds, right, are standing around and all of the the posters on the sides of the wall uh, or on the sides of the building are all of his big hits that he was uh, a part of and he was the leading man. I'll just throw this in here for all the car buffs again. With Ford donating automobiles, hey Jabo Ford, that's that's where you work. <laughs> With Ford donating uh, automobiles for most of the Twilight Zone production, it comes as no surprise that the Model T featured in the 1927 scenes is a Ford. So there you go, a Ford Model T is showcased in this particular episode uh, in the 1927 era. Um. He, who is this guy that he confronts in the alleyway here? Uh, it's it's like one of his old stagehands, and he gives him a bit of a uh, really important bit of information that Laura is at the speakeasy, and Booth is just shocked. <laughs> like Laura is alive, and he's about to go <laughs> meet her. It's funny, it's funny because he's like, "You mean she's not dead?" And he's like, "She's the prettiest yeah. ghost I've ever seen." No offense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, All right. <laughs> And so then we go to commercial, and then I think this is the second act where Booth, he is running to the speakeasy. And uh, I guess it's important to note this is the time during Prohibition. I think Prohibition lasted about 12 years or so. So um, this bar is like kind of like an underground club slash bar where you got a doorman, and you know he slides a, uh, a trap door and he has to kind of say the password uh, in order to get into this place. But the doorman knows who he is, and he even knows what he likes to eat. I think he asks him if he wants a steak or the usual or whatever when he comes in, and he's uh, Booth is looking for Laura. and uh, So he takes him through the outer door, the doorman, and then he takes him to the inner door, and this is like, you know, classic 1920s, uh, I don't know, uh, it's a hopping place. I mean, everybody's drinking and having a good time, and and uh, and there was something important about this particular set, wasn't there? Jimbo? Uh, right. Did I'll you wait have something um, because there is still this? a little bit more spoilers that we haven't got to yet. I'll wait till after we're done with this set. Okay. Well, well, this is an important set. This is. Uh, I'll leave Jimbo to give you that information. Um, so Booth finally sits down. Um, with Laura and his best friend Barney Fluger, and uh, this place is a scream. You know they're they're doing the Charlton and all of those 1920s big band music that my grandma used to listen to when I was a kid, and uh, it's it's pretty cool. The atmosphere looks really great. It's exciting, and you know, it's, uh, yeah. Um, don't really have anything as far as trivia as far as this scene is concerned, but. I will say initially when he meets Laura, it's not it is not a grand reunion. Uh, she seems sort of disconnected, and you know she, you know, he's just falling all over her. Like it's like after all these years, you know, however many years, it's been like forty, fifty years since he's seen her, and he he just 
wow, he's just so surprised, and you know, it's kind of really touching and yeah, sweet. Yeah, he wants that, to take you know, her for all these he years. Wants to take her somewhere to just talk because it's so loud in there, and he yeah. just wants to spend a lot of time. Yeah, with her, you know what I mean. Yeah, and it seems if if you ask me, his his best friend or whatever, Barney Fluger, she seems more interested in him, and that kind of throws you off too, like because you know obviously time hasn't hasn't gone anywhere for her. It's still 1927, and it's just another day in the life of you know their marriage. And yeah, I don't I don't really have a particular affection for this Barney Fluger guy either. He doesn't seem like a really yeah. I- he seems disconnected too, like, and it, and you'll find out why when we, when we get to it. Uh, I guess I don't know. It's not really a spoiler, I guess, if you've already seen this episode. But uh, he's trying. Booth is trying so hard. He just wants, again, like you said, Jimbo. He just wants to get her alone, and and he wants to probably tell her a million things that have happened in his life, and he just wants to reconnect with her. And she's more about having fun uh, and you know living in the moment and. Uh, yeah um so nothing oh that's an interesting uh note that we see like if you look at um laura she's she's fanning herself at the table because it's like really hot and you don't know it but that's a script that she's fanning i took a picture of that and you can actually see what it says i'll send it to you after this you do you think okay do you think it's an actual script of the actual episode no i think it's I'm, no. I don't want to tell you what I think it is at the moment, but I think it's the script. Okay. It's a script of what... It could be part of the script of the episode they're in. Do you understand oh, okay. what I'm Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought maybe it was. I thought, yeah, that it was the actual Twilight Zone script that she was fanning herself with. Um, yeah, I don't have anything, Jimbo. Why don't you jump in here and well, let's, give me something well, from your trusty well, companion? Go, or go a little bit further. Um, so... Uh, you know, he's like, I don't understand, and she, you know, she's just like, oh, you know, he he brings a drink back. He's like, why don't you give one of the here, Templeton? This is for you, and she's like, oh, this is for me. And she gets up and she starts doing this jive hand dance, this jive dance, dude. You know what? Yeah. Old swinging your hands yeah. and legs and all that. Yeah. And, um, she's got pearls on, and you know, Templeton doesn't understand, you know, and he he goes out there and and there's actually suppose I I couldn't see it when I watched it, but I was looking for it. But supposedly that uh, when he confronts her in the speakeasy and interrupts her dancing, he tears her string of pearls. Uh, mm-hmm. When she attempts to dance with a broken string of pearls dangling over the back of her neck, he interrupts the, her dancing again, and before walking away, Laura begins dancing again, but this time the string of pearls are whole again. So this was an accident overlooked by the film editor putting together film takes from various shots. So um, I tried to see it. It's it's hard to see if it did happen. Um but this is yeah. They splice it together. Uh, they splice it together pretty right. well. If if so, uh, let me if let me go to my happen. little trusty book because we're getting ready to come to a part that's going to be hard to come back from. Because um, basically, she says, uh, "Why don't you go back where you came from? We don't want you here." Pretty much, um, and I think this is this is pretty pretty good uh, lighting here because you know he he ends up leaving, and as he's leaving, you know it goes dark and everybody freezes. And that can't—that's a great scene. That's hands the, back over to her, and like even the background mm-hmm. fades out, and it's just her standing there. She's got this look of remorse. I think it's remorse on her face. Um, I do too. I don't—I don't think she really wanted him to go, but it was all part of the script, if you will. 
Uh, so let me read this little bit yeah. of uh, information I found uh, from my trusty companion book. Uh, the Trouble with Templeton has in, has in it one of the most visually beautifully scenes of the entire series. This occurs in the crowded, smoky-filled uh, speakeasy in which Templeton finds Laura, who is played by Pippa Scott. The place is loud with conversation and raucous music. At one point, Laura breaks into an absurd-looking Charleston. <laughs> Templeton tries to grab her to stop her. She slaps him. I forgot she slapped him, too. And says, why don't yeah, you yeah. go back where you came from? We don't want you here. She returns to her dancing. The camera follows the devastated Templeton as he rushes out. The moment he exits, all those in the speakeasy immediately fall silent and still. The smoke, which had suggested gaiety a moment before, now suggests a ghostlinessness. A ghostlessness. Ghostliness. I'll get it there in a minute. Uh, the camera pans across <laughs> the room back to Laura. She steps forward. The expression on her face is one we have not seen before. One we immediately realize reflects her true nature. Beautiful, intelligent, full of sorrow and longing. The lights behind her dim, leaving her alone in space. Then the light goes down on her, and all is black. The biggest concern we had, says Kulik, was that we would make sure that everybody understood that she was playing a part, and that she was really forcing herself to do this to get him to go back, you see. He adds modestly, it seemed to work. So, um, man, you can we can park on this horse for a while and, and take a couple rides all day long on this, because... Um, yeah, it was a great scene. I mean, I can't express enough my, how great that scene is in the in the my, episode. My question yeah. to you, Eric, is was this just a scene, as we will see in, in, the, in, in the script, or do you think it really was her? Did he really go back to see them? Do you think this is like their purgatory? Because they are stuck here, and she's like, basically, she's forcing him out of here. It's like, we don't want you here because you don't belong here. You know, what I mean, you're not dead yet. You know, we're you're still alive. We are dead because he says, Barney, you're dead. The guy that he sees at the door, he says, well, you're alive. You know what I mean? The guy that lets him in the door or whatever. There's several people in there that are that are dead. So that was what I was drawn to. That these they're trying to get him out of there. Maybe he's having an episode with the, that pill he was taking. I don't know. That's what I drew from it. Uh, that it's not his time to go. He needs to go back to where he was because his job's not done yet uh, in the real world. That's just some a little thing I drew up from it. I don't know if it's true or not, but I like it. I like my idea. Yeah, it it uh, I again that scene is just so perfectly executed, and I think they they are um, they want Booth to go and live his life. They they don't. I mean, call it purgatory, call it whatever. Um, the, I mean, you just feel for the guy up until that up until that point when he pulls that script out of his pocket. You know that the Twilight Zone twist, if you will. You are just heartbroken for the guy because everything that he's hung his hat on just kind of disintegrates in front of him, and like uh, he just he's just devastated by it. And then you get you get a glimpse of the twist on that awesome fade out, and then their their looks of just like. Uh, we had to do it, and we had to do it for his own good because, you know, he can't live in the past. He has to go on with his life, and, you know, we don't we don't want him here. We, really, they're saying it, you know, in a harsh way. Get out of here. We don't want you here, but the, for the for different reasons. They don't want him here for good right. reasons, but they have to make it seem. They have to follow the script. Did, did so, your heart tug yeah. for uh, his wife at all? 
Laura, did your heart just pull for a little bit, especially at the end, knowing that this will be the last memory he has of her, is her slapping him, and then telling him, we don't want you here. You know, I mean, my, when you look at her, and you can just see, like, she's devastated that what she just did. Yeah. Uh, my heart kind of went yeah. to her a little bit, too, not only to Templeton, but as well to her. So, uh, yeah. why don't you go ahead, yeah. go ahead let me just, take over when he walks I'm sorry, let me throw in some qu- some quotes, some quotes here. Uh, you know, as Templeton's up against the, that wall, he pulls that script out, and he says this, acting, they were acting for me. They wanted me to go back to my own life and live it. Um, should he, should, uh, here's a question for up for debate. Should that line have been used, or I wrote, if that line had been left out, do you think the audience would have come to that conclusion on their own? That's an interesting thought, mm. and um uh, like if he wouldn't have expressed that they were acting and they just left that Booth's line out of the the dialogue, do you think that the audience, by that scene alone, I think the answer is yes, by that scene alone where it zooms in on Laura and everything fades to black, uh, would people have put two and two together that, oh, they were, they were just acting for him without Booth actually saying What I would have liked to have seen, if that's the case in the script that, you know, he's reading, oh, he's going back and he's saying all that, I would have loved to have seen that last page when it said that the light fades back from Laura and Laura standing there with a look of regret or sorrow or something, you know, if that's the case. I think that would have had to be in there and for him to realize that that was happening about acting, um, just, to, just, to, mm-hmm. just to make sure everybody understood where it was coming from. Yeah, so um, we wrap up the episode. Booth has a, a whole, once he realizes that they were all acting on his behalf and that his wife hasn't forgotten about him and that, you know, that was a sort of an act of love that she sent him back to live his own life and that she did care about him. Uh, boy, what a twist and a turn. Now he goes back with new, re- he was, he's invigorated. He's got new enthusiasm about this production that he's doing. He's going to really live the best, uh, last years of his life, the best that he can, you know, doing what he loves and doing it to the best of his ability. I think he gets a new, lease on life if you will going forward and laura did that for him by releasing him from those memories if you will and i like what he says to the the play owner he's like templeton are you he's like yes i'm in and he tells the other guy he's like hey you know nobody of the outside is supposed to be in here go out you go ahead get in so he's he's reinvigorated his own life too where he kicks the uh what is it the guy that hired the new guy or whatever uh kicks him out of the out of the Mm -hmm. out of the theater and he's ready to get to work so um, I could, you can see mm-hmm. his new lease on life. You know what I mean? I think that's very interesting, too. Yeah. Anything as far as questions and observations? If you don't have anything, uh, I've got Go a, a few things here. Okay. Um, memories are precious, but nostalgia or a hunger to recapture one's past can become uh, a mirage, really. I think we see that in this episode. Back in the day, things always seem a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But are they really? Time has a way of smoothing out the rough spots, whether it be in relationships or personal achievements. Ask any older person about their athletic prowess in years (laughs) gone by. You're likely to be regaled with visions of grandeur from their own minds. And that's just something that I wrote as far as an observation. And it's it's really true. We, We tend to... I don't... I have a little something here I can read off the internet after, Jimbo, you give your, uh, your thoughts and observations, but... Um, nostalgia seems to be, you know, we, it's funny how we always go back to the good things. <laughs> we sort of block out all the bad things that may have happened in, in uh, times gone by, but, uh, 
uh, it's just funny how that works. And, uh, yeah, I mean, memories are precious. Like, uh, when you think about, of course, Christmas time, like, I'll just use that because we're, we're approaching the Christmas season. I thought of that. Like, there's never really, um, unless you have, like, a, a really bad Christmas where the, the hound dogs come in and tear up your turkey and you know eat it all and you don't have any turkey uh you you always remember it's funny you remember christmas oh you always remember the the good times the fond memories you don't really think about the bad things that could have happened leading up to christmas or you know the things that always uh the bad things that surround it it's funny how our minds sort of block and compartmentalize those things um as it pertains to our memories and nostalgia and all those things. But, uh, Jimbo, do you have anything as far as observations or um, anything for this uh, episode? I think that uh, Templeton is living in the past. Um, you can tell, even from very on, he, he, he remarried a younger lady. I think he's trying to capture the, uh, the memories of Laura and what he had with her because no matter what he does or who he dates, it's never going to be Laura again. Um, and you can mm-hmm. tell that because she probably just married him for his money. He's, he was rich, he was famous, and she married him for it, and now she's out there gallivanting with the pool boy. Um, and they look very cozy. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, you kind of feel bad for Templeton, but did Templeton bring a lot of this on himself? I think the answer is probably yes, um, because he just couldn't get over the hump. You know what I mean? He's living in the past when he's not living for the day. I don't know what that pill was he's taking. I think it has something to do with it. Um, I don't know if it's a depression medicine, maybe. I don't know. Um, it, it leaves it up to an observation, so I think that's fine. Um, other than that, I, I, I just think that uh, he could have done better. You know what I mean? And uh, as he was going through all that, it's just, it's just something else. Yeah, I definitely think that... Uh he's uh he's caught up in a in a life can you hear me okay now i can okay uh sorry we might have had a little something a little glitch there had a little power outage or something there for a second we we're having all kinds of trouble today but um let me read this from the the internet as far as this little paragraph that talks about nostalgia okay and this is from howstuffworks.com and it says this, as far as sensory triggers go, music is powerful and songs from adolescence and young adulthood are particularly so. A fact not lost on advertisers who infuse commercials for everything from cars to yogurt with tracks that their target audience grew up with. Experts theorize that music from this period of our lives is most strongly associated with emotional memories due to uh, properties of adolescence, pro- the properties of an adolescent brain. Uh, the neural activity activated by a song we like, which causes causes a release of feel-good chemicals called dopamine, and it is activated to a greater extent between the ages of 12 and 22. That extra intense reaction becomes associated with the events and emotions going on while the song plays. And the emotions going on while the song plays are an extra intense, too, as a result of those raging hormones at work in the brain. So I thought that another trigger is smell, which I didn't know that, and I won't read on about that. But smells and sounds can trigger nostalgia in the brain. And even in talking about Christmas, why do you think they play Christmas songs 
every year and your mind is transported back to when you were 10 and you got a new bike for Christmas when you hear that, you know, Frank Sinatra song or whoever it might be, you know, that kind of makes sense. Like those things, uh, the way your your brain works and it releases the, that dopamine and, you know, you have that nostalgic effect. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as the episode goes, a, a grade or a rating, I think it was pretty good. Um, I would probably rate it like around a seven for this episode. I really enjoyed it. And that scene there, again, I've mentioned it over and over. That just blew me away. Like her facial expression. I mean, she earned every dollar that she earned, uh, that she received for this episode for that one scene and that her facial expression, because she conveyed, I'm speaking of Laura, she conveyed everything we needed to know. Uh, about the episode in that one scene. Now, something I don't know if I really paid a lot of attention to, and maybe you did, uh, if you can think back at the beginning of the episode, does the his new wife look like Laura? It's really hard to tell because it's shot from a distance out through a window, and I think her back is turned for right. most of that right. scene. I just so. didn't know if maybe he was trying to capture the exact same thing, you know what I mean? Um yeah, it's possible. You know, I've watched this. Let's see, I've watched it uh, once about a week ago. I watched it once last night, and I watched it once right before we started recording. Um, and it's amazing. The more times you watch an episode, the more stuff you pick up on. The more your mind wanders to different scenarios or things that could happen. Um, for me, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to give this an eight. Um, I think it's definitely probably one of the upper. Uh, upper episodes of the season now when i first started this i didn't think so when i watched it the first time but now that you sit back and you dive into some of the other research and you start paying attention to some of the dialogue and some of the uh, little things you might have missed nuances i think it deserves to be up there uh with one of the best we've seen so far this season so that's my take on yeah. it so eric any final, i definitely would agree any final thoughts no but i think we both gave this episode two thumbs up and a full round of applause. <laughs> oh, well, we're going to get a boo, 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 a wah, wah, wah or anything? <laughs> no, no. This one, I think, will, will stand up. I thought it was a, a good episode on many accounts. Right. And we're back to 35 millimeters, so Angry's E can go away for a little while for a few episodes until we get to the night of the meet. <laughs> right. Well, thanks again for joining us once again for the Twilight Zone series. We appreciate you guys listening. If you want to follow us, we are on the uh, Facebook at the Tragedy of Cinema at Gmail doc, or the Tragedy of Cinema Facebook group on Facebook. And you can uh, email us at the Tragedy of Cinema at Gmail.com. Well, Eric, with that being said, I think this episode's coming to close, and that's a wrap. And cut. Mr. Booth Templeton, who shared with most human beings the hunger to recapture the past moments the ones that soften with the years. But in his case, the characters of his past blocked him out and sent him back to his own time, which is where we find him now. Mr. Booth Templeton, who had a round-trip ticket into the Twilight Zone.